Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is personhood. And my guest is James Tunney, an Irish barrister. He is author of The Mystical Accord, Sutras to Suit Our Times, Lines for Spiritual Evolution. Also, The Mystery of the Trapped Light, Mystical Thoughts in the Dark Age of Scientism. The Empire of Scientism, the Dispiriting Conspiracy and Inevitable Tyranny of Scientocracy. Tech Bondage, Slavery of the Human Spirit. He's also written two dystopian novels, Blue Lies September and Ireland, I Don't Recognize Who She Is. James lives in Gothenburg, Sweden, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, James. It's a real pleasure to be back with you again after many months. Well, it's a real privilege for, and pleasure for myself, my friends, to continue our, our dialogue and conversations, and uh, I'm looking forward to our conversation today. We'll be talking about the concept of personhood. And the first thought that comes to me about it is that we are all invested uh, to some extent in ourselves, but there's so many forces arguing that we should sacrifice our own self-interest for the benefit of one group or another, some collective. It could be a political party or a religion or a, a nation. It seems as if there's, there's a lot of pressure on individuals not to put their own self-interest in front of all else. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting way of putting it. I, I agree with you. Um, but it requires that we begin to think of what do we mean by the individual or the person uh, and how does that relate to the group. And in particular, I think there are two opposites. On one side, you might point to pure individualism of the Ayn Rand type and an associated philosophy of objectivism. That we could do. And on the other side, we could point to collectivism and all the various forms of that. Uh, and also bear in mind that in, in those collectivisms, there's a strong emphasis uh, on materialism. So in many senses, there's a lot of pr pressure on the idea of what the person is and who the person is. And any ideas of selfhood are, are dependent on identifying what we mean by the person. So uh, I, I would initially ask people to think of what the word person means. And it's not a simple, uh, it's not a simple idea. Um, of course, we can elaborate on the idea of the human, but it's not confined to that idea. So first, if we take it, and I think that Tom is appropriate to identify with Homo sapiens as, as the use of tools, and also the thumb is something that they used to cut off in the ancient societies because it's also associated with intentionality. But if we take the idea of the, the natural person, the human, that's the standard kind of common sense idea people have about the person. But that idea is, is under, under threat, and it's, uh, there's a lot of competition for, the, for the, the term person. So now we see that there's a strong movement to grant personhood to animals. So there's been cases where they've been arguing that an orangutan has personhood and that other animals have. Now, again, I'm, I'm in favor of looking after the animal kingdom and not treating it the way we did before, but not at the expense of the concept of the, the dignity of the human. Um, so this, uh, the, the idea of other natural persons, although it is there also in indigenous philosophy, indigenous thinking, I can accept it. And we do have to have a reaccommodation with, uh, with the biosphere. But 
we can't have it in a way that puts the human into the to be treated like animals in the industrial culture as well. And then there's another important concept that we have to bear in mind is the idea of an artificial legal person. So if four people are sitting in a room around a table and they create a company, we have five people in the room. The, the corporate entity, and again going back to the Latin for, for body, is a legal person. So in, a concept, in that concept, when we're talking about legal persons, we're talking about the ability to have rights and duties, to enter into contracts, etc. So it's a legal concept. It, it, it was standard during the British imperial reign, reign in India to grant legal personhood to idols and to deities. And that's a common phenomena in India. To, they, they, the administrators had to bring them within the system. So they granted personhood. So it's not confined to, to flesh and blood. And so we know this about the works, when or how corporations rule the world and the various works. If, if we look at a globe, as we're teaching our children, perhaps, about the countries that rule the world, it's not accurate because it's corporations that rule the world or corporate groups or international groups. And then we have the idea of an ideology which unites groups, whether it's Trotskyism, or Marxism, or any any group behind the scenes, or we could take from the other end of the scale, we could also bring in secret groups coming from an Irish context and a Scottish context. I was very familiar that there was a lot of secret groups or a running society, the IRA, for example, and those organizations were secret groups. So these are entities that can act uh, uh, as, as a body. And in Scotland, uh, Freemasonry, for example, is, is another uh, group of, of agents in society. And then we have to consider that in, in scientific developments, if we look at people like uh, Douglas Hoffman, who I'm increasingly critical of his model of the world, but he, in, in the, reduction, the mathematical reduction of everything to conscious agency, the human person and human personhood is not regarded as special. So the r robot and the human will be regarded uh, in the same idea as conscious agents. And because the robots have a greater computational power or powers of ratiocination, they will be higher regarded. So there's, and then of course, there's, there's pressure from transhumanism and posthumanism. So there is severe pressure on the idea of, of, of personhood. And it's a deliberate process of deconstruction, largely driven, in my view, by scientism. And this is a uh, this is a great threat. So, so in uh, uh, in analyzing or providing a, a, a critique, which I think is robust of society, I'm also trying to point to the philosophies that are useful to combat the growth of the technosphere. Uh, the idea that we're the technium, the technosphere or the, the Nova scene, as Lovelock has, uh, has written about, the idea of that we're going to be run by superintelligence, or, or as John Lilly, who, who you interviewed, talked about solid-state entity. I think that the cultivation of the personhood, which is based on the individual uh, human person, in a broader relationship to the natural environment, to the natural world, is a, a way to restore the balance. And that's why it's important to look back at that, the traditions, for example, of personalism, and to look back at these debates about humanism and what that means. Now, you mentioned personalism, which I gather is, in effect, a philosophical school. Could you elaborate on that? Personalism is, uh, I, I used to think in terms of individualism, but for individualism tends to has got a kind of narrower meaning and the more Ayn Rand type. So sometimes when I'm talking about individualism, people think I'm talking about the idea that we all look after individual interests in a very selfish way and the selfishness drives everything. So that's a kind of one end and collectivism at the other. But in between is this notion of personalism. Now, personalism would be, again, there seem to be a dozen, maybe 15 different schools of personalism. So at some stage, it might become meaningless. But I think the essence is very, very important. Uh, it would be a, uh, an accurate description of the philosophy of Martin Luther King, for example. He was very much informed uh, by people like uh, Bowden, Parker, Bona, uh, Bona in, in, in Boston, and that informed a philosophy which was there already in, in his upbringing. 
So personalism was very important for him. It was very important or could be used to describe the philosophy of William James, in my view. Now, there's an interest in, there's a number of different streams we could, we could look at to identify where it com comes from. If we look at William James, for example, he was influenced by Franz Brentano. And Franz Brentano is an neglected thinker on, if you like, the philo philosophy of psychology. And he lived from 1838 to 1917. He was a Catholic priest. He had disagreements about papal infallibility, and, and he left the priesthood and married. But he, he was a, a noted professor, a noted teacher, who couldn't get full academic status, but he taught in Vienna. And he had some, very, some, some students that were very influential. For example, Sigmund Freud was one of his students. Uh, Husserl was one of his students. Steiner was one of his students. I think Karl Stumpf uh, 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 was one of his students. So he had an influence on their thinking. He, he's, he influenced two particular streams. One, the, uh, the Austrian uh, philosophical school and, uh, and the kind of positive uh, approach. But he, his greater influence was on people like Husserl, who, who developed uh, ideas from Brentano's worldview. Now, Brentano was... He was looking back at Aristotle. He was he was trying to uh, re-examine Aristotle in a modern context and how that informed a mo uh, our modern context. Now, of course, Aristotle comes largely through people like Aquinas and through some of the Arabic writings that 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 uh, kept him going. But Brentano looked again and and he began to focus on consciousness itself, and he began to focus on interiority and the significance of interiority and the inner life and Husserl continued that in a methodological con context and he developed a kind of modern phenomenology distinct from Hegel and, and others beforehand and there was a movement away from Kant as well so they began to focus on the significance of experience on the significance of the individual uh, and Husserl was very very influential so he had students like uh, Edith Stein, an assistant, and Edith Stein went on to become, she, she was a Jewish convert who, who died in Auschwitz, who became a Catholic saint uh, recently. And um, so, so she was, she, her philosophy, she's neglected as a philosopher. She was very, very important. Uh, also, he influenced or had a, a contact with Max Scheler, who would have influenced Carl Wachila, who, who was a, who, 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 who wrote a dissertation on this subject and went on to become Joe, John Paul II. So there was, there was this very interesting connection between Judaism and Christianity and Catholicism, and it was a, it was a great there's a great efflorescence of of thinking there that uh, had a great influence on philosophy here, and um, of that there was a connection between philosophy growing in the United States and Europe. And there's one more there's one more element in this. Um, I, I would also point to, to different places in Germany. He was at Freiburg, uh, Husserl, and, and, and some of his students. And he also, he, he got visits there and, and connections from people like Gunther Anders uh, and Hannah Arendt, who were married at one stage. And they were personalists uh, in, in one sense. And they were very much associated with the critique of totalitarianism. So personalism becomes a very important critique of totalitarianism and technology and also i would mention william stern who in the in his book in 1906 wrote about the person and the thing he argued that we have to distinguish between people and objects and i think this is very important because what's happening with transhumanism and that is the person is becoming a thing it's becoming an object and a final figure jeffrey sorry for going on too long is another figure who went to breslau where william stern was uh, which is now Wrocław, Poland, and that was Kurt Goldstein. And Kurt Goldstein uh, came, who, who had worked with prisoners who had uh, survived World War I or, or, or soldiers who suffered trauma, and he developed in his holistic view of the organism a kind of therapeutic approach that he brought to the United States. And his, he, he was the one that developed originally the concept of self-actualization. So there was also this current of natur philosophy associated with Goethe, which led to a holistic view of things. So I think all these, these ideas 
branch together. But the essential idea is that the human person is the basis, not only of epistemology and ontology, but of what the world is about. And it's similar, but different to idealism. There are subtle differences, I think, with idealism. I'm surprised that you haven't brought up Mirandola and the oration on the dignity of man and all of the uh, Renaissance thought about uh, the nature and importance of, of the person. The idea of personhood and the idea of the human is, they overlap, but they're kind of distinct in, in a kind of theoretical sense. But you, you're correct. Uh, and this, you point to and you put your finger on a key moment that personalists recognize. So th- there is a distinction. Um, so, so what does that mean, humanism? Now, it's, it's, we seem to know and have common sense, we're able to identify what a human is. It's very, very interesting, the Turing test. Uh, you know, it's meant to be difficult for uh, us to identify whether a computer uh, uh, can act like humans. But it is ironic that we now have to identify ourselves to computers when we're filling in some of these capture things. It's quite incredible, reversal. Um, but uh, if we go back to Mirandola, it is a crucial period. There's two figures that I believe were the fork in the road of Western civilization and world civilization. And they were largely contemporary. And that's Mirandola, as you mentioned, and Leonardo da Vinci. Now, both were Renaissance figures, but they were hugely different if you look at the content, as far as I can see, of their philosophy. And as the, the great Russian philosopher Berdyaev believed that humanism, coming from that period, from the Renaissance, went wrong with Leonardo da Vinci. And, and what was the difference? Well, if you look at Pico della Mirandola, he, his humanism was a total holistic worldview that was very informed by ideas of hermeticism, there was ideas of magic, the Kabbalah was crucial in it. So it was a unifying view, a cosmopolitan view that was informed by perennial philosophy and saw the individual uh, as, as not just the body, but the spirit, the spirit as well in, in a wide sense. And I, I, I've seen the uh, interview that you did with Michael Cremo in relation to the, the, the Veda, Vedas and UFOs which is, uh, at this time, it's, it's just coming out. And he mentions at the start, which is interesting, that, that the Vedas are a personalist philosophy. So this is another idea of the person that I, I should have mentioned, that we also have supernatural persons. So in Mirandola's world, he saw that we, or he believed that we were, we had elements of animality, of, of the beast, but we had the potential to be angels, potential to be higher beings. Now, when we, when we contrast that with Leonardo da Vinci, Leonardo da Vinci, remember as well, uh, although we celebrate his paintings, he only did a few, by the way, he only did a handful of paintings. He wasn't painting much. Uh, he was part of the, the matamagician, if you like, they use the term from the Phantom Toll book that I learned out my daughters. I heard them reading the Phantom Toll book, uh, booth and uh, he talks about the, the mathematician in Digitopolis who, who lacks rhyme and reason. If you look at the, the, the Duomo in, in, in Florence, which is the great kind of indicator of, of the Renaissance in many senses, and if you look at Brunelleschi, we were talking about the development of mathematical principles. Perspective uh, was very important as a mathematical phenomenon to help create an illusion, because of course these great pictures in the Renaissance are taking 3D paintings, fantasy, and turn them into 2D. It's illusory. So they, got, they, they became experts at illusion. So the, the, the movement on from Leonardo da Vinci on, on his path is the movement of ratio, ratiocination, the movement, in my view, that Blake criticized, uh, that comes through Newton, that manifests in people like uh, John Locke, and that focuses purely on the rational element, on the mathematical element, on the machine element. Mirandola was not like that. So so th- there is a split there. So when we're talking about the Renaissance, there's different conceptions of the human. Now the post-humanists come along, they say, look, uh, humanism is bad because it excluded women and it excluded this and it had this view. 
But we're talking about different types of humanism. You can pick a certain type of humanism and take it out. And sometimes when they're saying that these groups were not included in the idea of humanism, they're simply wrong. Sometimes they're talking about legal concepts of personhood. They're not talking about the original ideas. And similarly, if we look at uh, the conquistadores and, and the, the conquest of South America and the terrible things that happened there, often it was people like Bart Bartolome de las Casas uh, who came from a religious perspective who argued that the native people uh, had were human who had rights and were entitled to rights and were entitled to equal treatment that was early on those those bits are are, are missed out now for ideological reasons so humanism comes into it and it has to be considered but uh, the, the the trends are not quite the same thing i'm getting the impression and maybe of course it's because of your own background as a barrister but it it seems that ultimately when we talk about the nature of the person we have to look at legal structure person is defined legally in terms of rights and responsibilities before that we have to consider in a kind of philosophical way because often terms are constructed and people work on them for, for particular reasons. Now, I, I, it came up, the idea of personal relation, abortion, and I, I don't want to get, because often people end up discussing situations which are on the margin and the, the central principle is forgotten about. So it, it, it comes up in very insidious ways sometimes. I'll take, I'll take the example of um, Richard Dawkins, who I'm very critical of. I'm not an admirer of him. Good luck to him and, and the good things he's done. But, I mean, his, his kind of fundamentalist scientism, as opposed to science, um, it can be very destructive. For example, he, I know everyone makes stupid comments, but if the stupid comment is part of the philosophy, you have to treat it a bit more seriously. And he's, he's made terrible comments about uh, people with Down syndrome um, and uh, their kind of the desirability of them living, which are horrendous. But they come from ideas of... of personhood. If you come with a certain view and you circumscribe personhood, then you can begin to cut out people. For example, there are various criteria that, that, that are being proposed or that are sometimes proposed about personhood by people who work uh, in neurology. And they may say that you have to have certain cognitive abilities, certain functionality, whatever. But you can end up by creating a definition which could ex exclude people, um, old people, that could, ex you know, they're entitled because if you're not a person, then you begin to lose the rights associated with personhood. So the definition of personhood is very, very important. Uh, so a, a totalitarian society can reorganize the definition of a person to exclude groups, to exclude people that it doesn't want, and to dehumanize and depersonalize. So this is what this is what we saw in Nazi Germany, uh, and the this dehumanizing, depersonalizing idea is often first a philosophical, a political, an ideological movement. It's, it's part and process or part and parcel of collectivism for me. And it manifests itself in language where, and we see it in contemporary, you can, uh, I, I don't look at Twitter, uh, but I, I hear things about written, written on Twitter by people that are supposedly very well educated, who, which comes across in dehumanizing terms, you know, talking about people as cockroaches and things like that. Uh, that kind of disgusting uh, language is the essence of a dehumanizing, uh, depersonalizing philosophy, and it has to be resisted. Uh, it has to be resisted as well by emphasizing the, the human, the human with their spiritual uh, potential as well. Because I believe that scientism has sought to dispirit the person, and then we have that idea of the disenchantment associated with the enlightenment. But we have other kind of insidious trends which are more contemporary as we move into what I call the empire of scientism. Or I believe we have, unfortunately, Jeffrey, I think we have crossed the line into scientocracy, so it's not good, but I, I, that's what my belief is now. And we also see another element, the last element of the def our, our defacing, the defacing of the human individual. It's a very dangerous the mask idea, which is where persona comes from. Is getting deeper. It, it's a distancing of people from people, and and that's an insidious process. That other personists like Jacques Ellul in France, 
who was who wrote the Tech- Technological Society, they said that technics technique would oust the organic from 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 the world. Sorry, Jeffrey. No, you're uh, right on point there. I was going to bring up the notion that seems to come out of scientism that the human being is nothing more than a very sophisticated machine, that we don't really even have free will, that uh, our actions are are robotic in in a sense, that there's very little difference between a functioning human being and a robot. Part of this this bifurcation that I think is, is, is really manifest now is an insidious scientism that you can see in people like like Dennis, in my view, when he's talking about consciousness. They say, and not just him, a load of them say, even Donald Hoffman, who sounds very nice, sounds like a nice man, I'm sure he is a nice man, but in relation to his, his views, he said that consciousness is fundamental. So you say, oh, happy days, now they're finally realizing this, you know, part of post-material science. But he says, human consciousness is not fundamental. It's an incredible, it's an incredible statement. So when they're talking about, when some of them are talking about consciousness being uh, fundamental, they're not talking about human consciousness being fundamental. So that's the difference with the uh, Atman, Brahman idea. You have to be, one has to be careful about, and one has to search actually to find. And there's even in, in the theories of conscious agency, there's a difference between, I think, someone like Federico uh, Fagin and, and uh, uh, Hoffman. So we have to be very, very careful to identify the uh, what we're talking about. And so bear in mind what scientists are saying. It's very normal. Consciousness doesn't exist. You don't have consciousness. You don't have self uh, selfhood. They're doing daft experiments to prove that free will doesn't exist. The uh, Now, that has been... Uh, critiqued by certain f- philosophers of scientism as neuromania and the biologism and it's but it's very very dangerous that kind of viewpoint is the forerunner uh, as is predicted of a an ideology the ideology of scientism which w- was promoted by people like bernal with the objective of getting to a context where we had the mechanization of the human body, the breakaway civilization, space exploration to Mars, and the Earth would become some kind of whatever, but it would be a human zoo. That was what the scientists wrote about in the 1920s. This is what, I listened to the science, I listened to the scientists, this is what the scientists said. There would be this, uh, if we look at H.G. Wells, although he wasn't actually respected very much by the scientific community, but he, he talked about the need to abolish other loyalties so that the scientific elite could come to power and rule the world with a biomedical directorate. And we seem to be pretty much on on board with that plan, but it's not good. So instead of paying attention or not paying attention to these things, we must resist this. We must protect the human person. Now, there are many people that seem to want to become machines. Like as Elon Musk says, you get your telephone, you're a cyborg. And there's a lot of people want to develop that. And they, they do want to become integrated into the system. And that's supported by people that you wouldn't expect. It seems to be supported by uh, Terence McKenna, if you look at his writings. It seems to be supported by Teilhard de Chardin. It's supported by, if you read what they were saying, this idea that we'll all be integrated into some collective superintelligence uh, is very, very strong. It's being predicted now by, by, by scientists. I resist that. I'm going to stick with the old... Humanity, and also on the final point, Jeffrey. Sorry for going on. You, you probably forgot how much I bang on sometimes. But um, if you look at, I, I did an interview with Professor Anthony Clare, who's dead now, and he did an interview in a series called "In the Psychiatrist Chair." He was a, te- a television psychiatrist, but a, a practicing psychiatrist, professor of psychiatry, and he interviewed uh, a man uh, who was a, fr- a famous f- forensic uh, psychologist. And he he said he was surprised when he was talking to him because the man in the interview said that humanity stinks. So this this is quite typical, a kind of misanthropy that you find in the scientific community, in the techno science. They don't like people. They're quite clear. And he said he said another funny thing. He said that in his opinion, uh, that a lot of people that love animals hate humanity, or a lot of people that hate humanity love love animals. And maybe that's because they can control them. So there is a there is an idea of well, if we can control it, that's okay. But 
humans who are who can't be controlled and are unpredictable are dangerous and should be controlled and that plays into this mindset of control cybernetics which is about governance and control of the person well it seems to me that when you you talk about the philosophy of personalism as being halfway between collectivism and individualism there there needs to be some accommodation for uh, the needs of the collective and the needs of the individual that there's uh, there can be a balance yes and the there has to be some sensible model for this. So uh, the, the old ideologies don't work. And I think that in many senses, uh, communism and crony capitalism are, as my 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 friend, well, I, I talked to him a few times, uh, George Galloway, the politician, the left-wing politician in Britain, he says, two cheeks of the one arse. That's to quote him. I hope we can say this in our show. It's two sides of the one coin. They're, they're in the same materialist thing. He didn't say that in, in, in the same way. Uh, that I, I, I was talking about. So the how do we resolve this issue? The one who thought most about this, I think, recently thinking about how we find a solution, is Stafford Beer. Um, Stafford Beer was, who studied cybernetics and management. He was also involved with Salvador Allende uh, as an advisor before Salvador Allende was overthrown on... September 11, coincidentally, uh, in South America. And they were looking at how they could create, as far as I can see, a simulated economy. Now, this is, a, this is an interesting phenomenon because I believe we're going to move into the, the new industrial age that's coming. First, we'll have a kind of breakdown, and then we'll have this new age of automation, industrial age, where there'll be a simulated economy. It won't be real in, in any sense. But he, he looked at... He explained why, in cybernetic terms, the Soviet Union broke down. It, it, it broke down because of basically dysfunctional centrality. You can't manage a system from the center. So it was going to break down. But at the time, uh, and presciently, he said that the Western system has too much centrality and it will break down. So he predicted that and he saw that in, in the Thatcherite approach, etc., that there was going to be a, a, a breakdown in Western uh, civilization. So he explained the model that, that, that has to work, and he, looking at biological systems. What you want to have is autonomy uh, of the parts, and this is a, an area of mirology. This is what Brentano was talking about as well, funny enough. And this, er this idea of holism and the relationship of the whole to the parts is critical. So the parts in any functioning biological system need to have a degree of autonomy to work for the parts. They need to have a relationship with the overall system, but only, only that which is efficient enough to maintain the system operation, and it can't be any more power accorded to the center beyond the autonomy. And the amazing thing in his view, or when I was reading his description, is that degree of autonomy is what we would describe as freedom in many contexts. It's giving freedom to work. So the great problem of the 20th century was the belief in central planning for, you know, for many people. If you look at critiques of the road to serfdom, but it's not just a left-right issue. Any centralized system is going to break down. The difference now is that the cyberneticians believe they can create a global pseudo-economy based on cryptocurrencies, based on uh, you know, mixing the Chinese and U.S. systems uh, where the companies have power. And they believe that they can do central planning 2.0. And also the consequence of that will be human 2.0, the, the iteration of the, of the human. So there are models which suggest that we can have some central, central authority. But it's only so much as to make the system work. This, and we can go back to Adam Smith on that, when he, his model of you know, that why the butcher has an incentive to do what they do and the candle maker, etc. But you still need a framework of laws to, 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 to work in. And this is the thing that people are forgetting about. That in the constant attack, say, on the Judeo-Christian philosophy, philosophical construct, they're forgetting that a lot of their assumptions about how society works are based on the crystallized philosophy manifested in social institutions, which people are willing to discard. When you discard them, 
you won't get any of the other functioning ideas of trust that make a society. So, yes, autonomy in the parts, some degree of centralization. But I'm not, I don't believe that we're sophisticated enough to get to a situation where we can have a controlled centrality that will operate in the world. I don't believe that the people that are driving it are that enlightened. And uh, if it's not based on a profound commitment to the person and the biosphere, because a lot of these new systems of technology are destructive for, for natural resources. Again, I would put it, the technosphere is growing and the technosphere, the totality, the technium is trying to suck people into it. And they're trying to suck their person into the system. And obviously, when you get into transhumanism, what I'm concerned about is not where people are getting medical enhancements individually. It's network transhumanism. You won't have a choice. You'll get your little chip or whatever, and then you're some kind of zombie linked to a system. This is, in fact, what Teilhard de Chardin was kind of talking about, if you read Between the Lions. It's not a very pretty pretty situation but there there are ideas that can solve that in and they're, they're actually more scientific ideas than political ideologies you referenced adam smith earlier the great philosopher of capitalism i think he's an 18th century philosopher and uh he argued for i think what he called the invisible hand that if people were free simply to pursue their individual self-interests by magic everything would work out for the benefit of the collective which uh is basically his description of of capitalism but i i gather what you're saying is that this vision is uh, opposed to central planning it's very laissez-faire there's a combination there's a book recently uh, written about the uh, the theological underpinnings of the enlightenment because if you look at adam smith and david hume although you could take some of their statements as, as kind of movement away from from the old theories they were accepting that there was a Judeo-Christian uh, organization system. They made presumptions about the existence of a legal system, for example. If you don't have a legal system, you're not able to enforce contracts or, or, or deal with certain elements in society, and then you have a breakdown. So they were making certain assumptions about persist persistence. What they what what Smith Smith also wrote about. Uh, about deeper issues about virtue and philosophical issues that are not emphasized in, in, in discussions because uh, certain objectivists want to cut out anything about the spirit about a deeper dimension so his, his writing is a lot fuller than just merely the market description he was from uh, Kirkcaldy which was about an hour from where I lived or less in, in, in Scotland and the enlightenment in Scotland was based on a very broader view of society and we also had of course a lot of esoteric context in scotland people involved in a, a, a very deep range in the esoteric world uh, at that time but when he's talking about the invisible hand what he would refer to today is about the <coughs> excuse me the things that should be left alone things that we shouldn't interfere with that there are certain things that will work through their own, uh, the own principles, through their own incentives to achieve a particular result. And in many senses, when people are talking about the capitalist West, there's a, there's a stronger argument that in, in it doesn't reflect uh, a lot of the early views because they wouldn't have been in favor of government intervention in the way. The arguments about capitalism forget that there are different streams within capitalism. For example, Richard Rorty, in his essay on Trotsky, uh, Trotsky and, and the Wild Orchids, argues for a welfare capitalism, which he saw as something that would actually destroy the capitalist system. So the, uh, the, the point about all these is that if we have ideological approaches, which are not based on sound principles, we can't, we can't re, uh, come to constructive re, uh, results. And uh, I'm in favor of being very, very careful and using whatever good science is there to help us. But the idea that we should intervene, that we should solve everything, the idea that we should create a utopia can be a very, very dangerous one.
You and I have had many conversations about mysticism. You write and speak very favorably about mysticism. And so I'm a bit surprised that you bring up uh, Teilhard de Chardin in, in a kind of fearful way that there, there's something terrifying about his ideas. He, he seems to be suggesting that humanity is going to evolve, I would say, telepathically, that we will all uh, recognize that we share a common newosphere and that we will, at the end of time, all be united in the spirit of cosmic Christ and love. And uh, you, you seem to find this a, a terrifying vision. Yeah. Uh, I, I think your point to me there is a bit of a scaredy cat there. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I'm not fearful about any of these things. I'm resolved about the thing. I'm critical of it. I'm, I'm critical of the, um, so, and again, I, I don't even want to, to spread that idea of fear because that's not the way I see it. I see it in terms of looking at the assumptions. The problem is that already the Chardin has been used by transhumanists because what he said on one view is, uh, is consistent with a beautiful evolution of humanity. On another view, it's consistent with the technological evolution of, of humanity. For example, he talks about uh, humans coming together and the consciousness crystallizing and, and coming together. It's, it's the language that other transhumanists use. And they know that. There are statements I've come across where they're saying this supports. Now, they know he doesn't support them fully. Uh, I'm, I'm not saying necessarily that that was his intention. But if you look at it from how these things are interpreted, uh, it's not the emphasis that I would point to and i don't actually believe that this idea that we all merge into one is a great idea i think that the way it has operated the way uh, the way boundaries are good as as, as uh, william blake said uh, we don't want in our bodies the cells that have no walls to them for example the idea that boundaries are bad the idea that boundaries between individuals are, are fundamentally bad is an idea which is associated with this movement towards the technium. It's fighting the boundary. And uh, William Blake noticed very, very, very early on that ratiocination kind of had this uh, attack on the boundary. And it's why he always emphasized the outline in his figures. He believed that the outline was important to indicate that there were actually uh, separate units. So uh, the idea, there is a strong idea that seemed to be beautiful that we all become one being. Uh, unfortunately, I don't, I don't see that as uh, a necessarily beautiful one. And in view of the technological one, it, it doesn't allow for the personal sovereignty. Now, uh, I would contrast that view. So, yeah, fearful, no. I think, but he's over-glorified. He's one of these the certain figures that everyone's, oh, he's great, fantastic. And I know your, 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 your friend in Australia, who, who passed away, God rest his soul, was very much into, into Chardin. I, I don't see it in the same way. I'm willing to say that sometimes you go back and you reassess and say, okay, I understand what he was saying, and he was talking about a different era and a different way, and uh, I'm wrong. I'm willing to accept that. But actually, the future of man, when I read it, 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 it's, it, it doesn't impress me. But I would contrast that with the idea of uh, the person, and the, if you, I take the Emmanuel Levinas, who's, who's a, from a Jewish background, developed personalism. And, and a key thing in personalism is the idea of values, well, values with Shaler in particular, values and empathy and how you relate to other people. And in that, he emphasized the crucial significance, the divine significance of face-to-face -face contact. So he believed that the face was critical. The face-to-face -face, uh, con contact was the essence of relationship. Uh, now, that's a fundamental important thing if you look at it in relation to Edith Stein, who, who developed in, in her PhD or dissertation an idea of empathy and where that comes from. So the personalists, kind of unlike the idealist in some sense, uh, although there's a crossover, begin to focus on the encounter, on the other person on how you relate to the other person, on the significance of the other person, on seeing the divine in the other person. And it's a bit like, in a way, um, I suppose you could refer to Tantra, 
and the, the, the recognition of the other person and, and, or some other philosophies. It's to see a person before you. It's to engage them. It's not there in the same way, for example, in Buddhism, because in Buddhism you could say it is in certain streams, but there is a certain deconstructive focus on attributes as opposed to a person, even though they have reincarnation. There seems to be an unwillingness to accept that the, there is some kind of entity that, that, that continues or exists in some way. They're, 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 it's a bit strange in some sense. So the personalist focuses on the individual who comes through a process of empathy and engagement to a higher, uh, a higher interaction, uh, uh, through the encounter, as opposed to some kind of way that we're just all linked up and we get some computational power in a superintelligence format. And of course, Martin Luther King was the great, uh, a great example of personalism. And in the, in the United States, um, one of, one of, one of um, William James's students, uh, Mary Whitton Calkins, uh, was a, a great personalist. He said, I think she was one of his best students. She didn't get a PhD, although she was awarded a PhD. Harvard didn't grant her a PhD. Um, and I, 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 there was an effort to give one to her posthumously. I don't think she still got it, which is a disgrace on Harvard, if anyone from there looking. Uh, but uh, she she uh, emphasized personalism. Sometimes now she's seen as a feminist. But Personalism should be above any other description. We, we're, we're people first. And then if we want to identify our identities, they come in a subsidiary way. But absent the growth of the individual and the spiritual evolutionary context expanding, we're not in a position to uh, mix with other people. We have to grow first in some sense. So at the stage where we have fully grown, perhaps at that stage, we will be able to engage with other people. At a, and I believe we can at a, at a higher level, telepathic level, we have those powers. But to skip all those personal, all the spiritual evolution and merely go for a connectivity as a substitute for those encounters, say we're going to connect you up, we're going to make you part of the machine, because that's what it is, we're going to assimilate you. Well, that has taken a shortcut. It's a short circuit without all the, the, the evolution. I believe that we're here to spiritually evolve individually, personally. Uh, and I also believe, uh, I, I don't think it would be unlikely that we'll see major collapse of institutions, say like the Catholic Church, for example. It's Again, there's an undue centrality there, which is not very healthy. Um, it, it wouldn't surprise me. And uh, I think it was Karl Rahner, the theologian, who said that if Christianity survives, it will be mystical Christianity. I believe, and if you, if you look at the last point, Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King at the time of Montgomery was having a, a difficult time. He was uh, almost having a nervous breakdown. He didn't believe he would be able to continue. He had the famous kitchen table incident where he's He's wondering, can he continue? He's wondering about his family. He's wondering where he'd get the courage from. And it was at that point that he had kind of a mystical experience uh, of the divine, which took his fear away. Uh, it was a classic kind of sense of of an input from, from abroad. And he believed that for him, because there is a link between, but not necessary to have that link with the divine or theistic personalism, that... God was a personal God. It didn't mean that God looked like the fellow that you might see on a stool in the pub. It meant that you could have a personal relationship with the divine. So Martin Luther King saw that personal God as meaning that you had a relationship with a force which could intervene to support you. And and, and similarly, if we look in the Hindu traditions and the Vedic traditions, that personalism is there in relation to avatars, uh, etc. So, um, yeah, I, I, I just I, I find that there's too much uncritical acceptance of the Chardin. Actually, one critic, one uh, critic of the Chardin, an early critic. Um, now, I haven't found this because it's uh, it's in French, but I haven't got the book yet. I can read French, but uh, uh, okay. But Bernard Charbonneau criticized the Chardin, and Bernard Charbonneau 
was the, the, the inspiration as well for Jacques Ellul. They were two French personalists who understood that technology was turning to totalitarianism in the way that Gunter Anders, the son of William Stern, the great, uh, the, the great who, who, who we talked about early on, Gunter Anders was Gunter Stern, and uh, of course his father developed child psychology. But the uh, they Charbonneau um, criticised Deschardins, and I think he saw that it was supportive, intentionally or not, of this idea of the human as some something similar. If you look at the words, it's something similar to crystals. He talks about crystallization. He talks about it's the language of crystallography, which is also the subject that J.D. Barnell, I'm not, I'm not putting them in the same category, J.D. Barnell, uh, he was a crystallographer. And there seems to be something in a certain mindset which requires things to be fixed, immutable, unpredictable. And it doesn't like the organic. It doesn't like things which are unpredictable. It doesn't like the unknown. It doesn't like uncertainty. And I, I got that sense in, in Deschardins. I could be wrong. I, I will stand corrected when I, when I do more research. To conclude our discussion, let me bring up uh, the whole area of parapsychology, which is the main focus of the New Thinking Aloud channel to begin with. Uh, all the research, for example, in remote viewing does suggest to me that consciousness is much greater when we talk about our individual consciousness. There seems to be ultimately no barrier between my personal consciousness and all information anywhere in space and time in the whole universe, which, which does suggest that, that we're all uh, partaking of a, a single larger mind, as, as Larry Dossey would say, one mind. I don't have any problem with that. I, I have no problem with that. It, that that's a different that's a different idea than the mechanization of the human in order to force them to link up as a supposed computational force. That's a totally different idea. In fact, let me put the argument simpler in this case. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a supporter of parapsychology because it identifies those extra dimensions of uh, humanity. And I think that's one of the reasons why the algorithm, for example, doesn't like parapsychology and will penalize people like yourself because parapsychology doesn't fit in with scientism. It doesn't fit in with, with, with some areas of science. They won't look at the evidence. So what I am suggesting is that the balance to the technosphere is what I call the animosphere. Is what I, I've so, so that would refer to the domain that you talk about and where the psychonauts travel to, uh, using Gene Houston's idea and that. So where are the psychonauts traveling to? This is the interior space that the personalists were talking about. This is the interiority. So in my, in my view, a lot of, like William James talked about, a lot of our consciousness is merely the interface between the great interior space and the external world. So we can't confuse the interface uh, and that's different from Hoffman's view, but we can't confuse the interface with the totality of our experience. So I believe in all these areas. I believe in in much of those phenomena that you have have examined. Uh, I've experienced some of the phenomena. Uh, the most difficult one, actually, I have is apports. That's one that I, I have I find difficult. But the rest of them, I have no problem with, and I believe that to be the true the true basis. But in all those contexts. In a spirit body, you don't lose your entire spirit body. There is still, even in the near-death experience, there is still a unity that comes back. There is still an entity in us. There is still the soul no bigger than a tomb that I believe is at the center. So for some reason, there is that distribution. And perhaps the great creator or evolutionary force understood that it was necessary to fragment you know, to create the, the, the sparks and in individuals. We see this in, in some of the, uh, the, Kabbalah, the Kabbalah and the fragmentation idea. Perhaps in the great wisdom, there was an idea that we would and were meant to evolve individually to do that. But all those psychonauts, they don't come back 
as a different physical form and the thing they, they communicate and uh, uh, this, this is uh, merely the, the cities the higher levels uh, but it's not talking about a physical transformation the physical transformation is the dream of the materialist and I've, I've referred to recently as the black magic of materialism they seek to do uh, following on in a Nietzschean way to develop the superhuman or in the Promethean way to develop the titans to distinguish themselves from humans and this is an idea that or, or this was dealt with by uh, Sri Aurobindo in an essay on supermanhood he distinguished between spiritual evolution and utilizing um, material approach to develop powers so uh, what I would say is the animosphere I refer to that domain that covers the entire imaginal world that covers the entire interiority that covers the entire theology of uh, of inner space from all the different uh, traditions that includes perennial philosophy includes the areas that we don't know the uncharted areas includes the powers that have been recognized in all the spiritual traditions that are searched for in parapsychology that reinforced by the stories that reinforced by the phenomenology that was a, a term we should have talked about the phenomenology the emphasis on experience phenomenology which has been used as well by native indigenous philosophers to be able to represent the significance of the vision quest if we look in canada important papers on that so um, what I, I am saying is that for whatever reason that individual spirituality uh, maintains a, a degree of sovereignty and in fact it warns you against giving over your sovereignty to bigger forces this is what it warns you in particular if you take in the Christian tradition where uh, Satan offers you know you can have all this you can have all the world and that's what you're in many ways they say you're, you're meant to reject that with the buddha would be the same thing in relation to confusing the illusory thing with whatever way you want to express it in relation to your soul or the elements uh, that, uh, in, internally so uh, i think that the critique of the technosphere and the critique of scientism is a support of the parapsychological endeavor and it's a, a support of the recovery of the spiritual tradition of humankind that's being taken away but it's worse now because in the 1860s people like Huxley and that they came for the human spirit and they began to wipe it off the blackboard of, of human memory they began to take it from discourse and that was why the word psychology was used and psychic forces instead as we've discussed before um, but now we're going they're going for more things they're going to take away consciousness itself this is what the the impetus of certain forces within the technosphere within scientism uh, is seeking to do it's seeking to mix up the the map with the territory it's seeking to focus on models and not substance and uh, in that sense people can easily be deluded hypnotized made a mistake what i would say is that i believe in people i believe in the persons irrespective of any other quality and quality is is important aspect as opposed to quantitative approach that we're moving into a situation where we will only exist as a quantified self who are run by machines i want to emphasize the human the the importance of the human the sovereignty of the individual the sovereignty and from there the solidarity with other people true recognition of them irrespective of superficial categorization that people love to do to put you into categories because divide and conquer is a strategy of the empire of scientism don't let yourself be put in a category don't let yourself be put in a situation where you're dehumanizing someone else you're dehumanizing a group on the basis of a religion sexual orientation whatever D don't let that happen uh, be careful about being marshaled and be communicated into a context where you're you are saying things which are dehumanizing which don't recognize which don't recognize that the person as yourself are aspects of divine consciousness it's not just that that computational intelligence quotient test that's done by science but it's a deeper consciousness which is the greatest force in the universe as in atman uh, brahman we have that we are it you are it and in 
and through the process as we are trying to do in a face-to-face contact we have to meet other people learn from them challenge their views challenge our own views and then seek uh, higher truths that's the way at some stage in the future we may be able to find out what the final game game is but at the moment if we're not evolving spiritually and we make a substitute a technical substitute for that uh it will be the end it's going to be the end of the human race as we know it so well james tunney once again a very stimulating conversation I think your heart is in a really good place. This is an incredibly important message to share with our viewers. I'm hopeful that uh, we'll be able to continue and have many more conversations like this in the future. James, once again, thank you so much for being with me. Thank you very much, Jeffrey. It's always a pleasure and I look forward to our next conversation. And I appreciate the opportunity and I appreciate your your. Your, your dialogue and it's 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 great to see i know that people are very happy uh and people are, are very happy in sweden to, as well to, to see you back uh you have you have a an audience around the world and you have a lot of people that that love you and a lot of people that that missed you and were concerned about you uh although they didn't have to be but uh they were so that's nice to know and i'm delighted to, that we're we're talking again and and, and trying to solve or or, or articulate our, our opinions on these topics. Thank you. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us.